Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean, welcome to the roundtable. You and I flying solo this week as... Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, is reenacting Braveheart in his native homeland of Scotland. <laughs> yeah, well-deserved break. Um, but he's here in spirit because I think we're going to talk a, a, a bit about something. He wrote a terrific piece for us, um, published today at The Hub, uh, Friday, May 19th, uh, about the Century Initiative's calls to raise Canadian population levels to something approaching 100 million by the end of the century. And a lot of the political and a kind of opinion commentary we've seen on that subject just in the past week alone. Yeah, no, let's, so let's go there first. On the back half of the show, I want to talk, Sean, with you about industrial policy. We're seeing this kind of, uh, I can only characterize as a bit of a train wreck between um, various <laughs> levels of government, uh, EV battery companies, car manufacturers, a kind of bidding war for, uh, I guess uh, the future of, at least in this case, an, a- an important aspect of the Ontario economy. So we'll have that after the break. But let's start with this Century Initiative. You and I have spoken about this group, and just to our listeners maybe who are not aware of them, I think they're one of the more effective uh, policy shops uh, l- lobbying uh, the government for what has already been a significant change in Canadian immigration policy. And I think a lot of it uh, lies with the emergence of this group, uh, the Century Initiative, which has, as Sean said, an objective to accelerate uh, Canada's immigration um, to hit a 100 million population target uh, by 2100 and to do so by as we've seen this liberal government in post COVID ramping up immediately and then sustaining immigration levels, uh, approaching a million or more, uh, newcomers a year through various, you know, intakes, either student visas, permanent workers, uh, permanent residents, uh, you name it. Um, Sean, why has this idea in your mind captured policy elites, because it's not only captured elites in the government, clearly, uh, because the ideas of the Century Initiative are now, in a sense, government policy. It's also captured a lot of the kind of talking and punditry class who have embraced this idea, which we're going to debate it today. I mean, it's the only way to put it is it it's aggressive. It is a a pretty radical transformation of the Canadian economy, of the Canadian society, of Canadian politics and demographics. And it just amazes me, Sean, it's so big and I think it's so substantial and worthy of a sustained reflection and dialogue, yet there just seems to be the sound of, uh, you know, a chorus of violent agreement around this pretty outsized idea, which really isn't, I think, being the subject of as much debate as it should. Yeah, there's, I have, certainly have my theories. I suspect you have yours on why um, this idea of effectively juicing immigration levels uh, uh, in order to get to something like 100 million citizens by um, the end of this century is, has so much resonance, as you say, within the corridors of political power uh, but the opinion pages of major newspapers and elsewhere. Um, part of it, I think, is uh, a self-image of Canada as, uh, you know, was the prime minister, of course, who famously said, diversity is our strength. Um, I think on our last episode of the Roundtable, Rudyard, you uh, you were expressed worry about the lack of kind of connective tissue that holds the country together uh, in terms of shared sense of citizenship or national identity or or whatever. And it seems to me 
um, for the prime minister and, and others in kind of center left circles, the, the sense is it's diversity itself um, that is that source of 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 identity. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason we've seen um, this kind of growing consensus around the need not just to maintain the high levels of immigration that we saw in the first decade or so of this century, um, but to, to, to raise them even higher. The second, I think I'd say, is perhaps less um, magnanimous. Uh, I, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of uh, voices in the business community have expressed their support for this idea. Uh, we're about to enter... Uh, quite a transformation in our labor market. As Stephen Polos, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, said to me in a recent episode of, of Hub Dialogues, the, the economy of the previous 50 years was marked by labor surpluses. In effect, the power balance between workers and employers tilted in favor of employers. Um, but going forward, that imbalance is going to shift um, because of a sustained period of tight labor markets driven by demographic change. And one can't help but think um, that the kind of high-minded appeal of of a hundred million uh, citizens by the end of the century is at least for some uh, a kind of Trojan horse uh, to effectively try to uh, fix that balance such that uh, it doesn't have the kind of um, upward pressure on wages that market theory tells us it ought to. So I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, my sense is Rudyard that it's a combination of high-mindedness and idealism, you know, some politics sprinkled in. Um, but, you know, as you often say on this podcast, sometimes you have to follow the money. Uh, and part of me can't help but think that um, that this is as much about a, a kind of preference for Canada's relative low-wage economy um, on the part of uh, a, a lot of the people involved in these initiatives. How, what's your sense? What's what's your kind of working theory behind the, the resonance uh of this idea in, in the past several years. Yeah. Well, let's build on that. Cause I think Stuart, uh, who would be here to talk about his piece again, really recommending people check it out, published in the hub today on a recent conference by the century initiative. What I took away from Stuart's piece and other things I've read around this group and, and columnists like Andrew Coyne, who seem to really embrace their call for a hundred million population is underneath all this is an economic model. Um, if you go back over the last decade and you, uh, let's say, let's say Canada had no immigration for whatever set of circumstances, we would have had zero or negative GDP growth. So the only way as a society that for a whole variety of reasons that we talk about at the hub at all the time is really experiencing sclerotic economic growth for really since the great financial crisis, seemingly unable to be reversed on the part of governments, either through, you know, fiscal largesse or, you know, regulatory and other reforms at the margins. The result is that I think we have become dependent, if not addicted, to high immigration as a growth panacea for the underlying problems that are deep and are affecting our economy. And well, you're so, so eloquent on this, Sean, so I'll turn it over to you to talk about why, you know, gross GDP growth is a kind of lousy metric to, you know, analyze and track and assess the progress of an economy and, in a sense, the wealth of nations. That what this is masking, Sean, it, you know it well, is is actually a, an abysmal track record in Canada on per capita economic growth. So GDP divided by population. And in fact, there was reporting out recently in the Globe and Mail, I believe, that Canada's GDP growth vis-a-vis -vis some of its peer jurisdictions when measured on a per capita basis over the last decade is fully a quarter, 25% less than our other peer jurisdictions like the United States, UK, Australia. This isn't just, you know, comparing with the big, bad, high inequality society of the U.S. So I think, uh, Sean, that the, the real story here is governments and businesses and industry grappling 
anxious about Canada's flagging uh, GDP growth, uh, the problems that are deep within our economy, and an unwillingness on the part of all these parties to deal with the more systemic, lasting, and impactful ways that we know would stimulate per capita GDP growth, and instead they're just going to go for the big raw number because that's, you know, for TELUS, Rogers, BMO, TD Bank, you you name the large, you know, agopolistic cabals that, again, are part of that low per capita GDP growth that we allow in Canada. All these people are new customers. It's it's new bottom line revenue. For, for their metrics, this lines up to something that allows them to tell a growth story on a, a company by company basis, let alone the entire real estate sector of which Canada has completely over indexed its, its economy and economic activity around. If that doesn't have a growth multiplier driven by population, then we just have a series of compounding economic problems that in the current policy mix are just, I worry, Sean, are, un, are irresolvable. Yeah, well said, Roger. I mean, in effect, what you're saying is GDP is important, but it's not everything. It's a it's a measurement, and it's a blunt instrument, right? It it measures all of the economic activity occurring within an, an economy, and so if the population grows, by definition, um, GDP grows. Um, but you know, I don't think talking to my grandfather in Thunder Bay or my friends elsewhere in the country, they sit around thinking, oh, our our, our GDP has gone up and my personal economy feels a lot better, of course. Uh, uh, what ultimately matters for one's personal economy is GDP per capita. Are our living standards going up? Are we richer per person? And as you say, Rudyard, one of the shocking numbers that I've seen um, in recent years is, it, to, to the point you raised earlier, it wasn't that long ago, actually, where we were you know, relatively matched with the Americans on GDP per capita and, and other peer jurisdictions. And what we've seen in the past quarter century or so is this growing divergence. Um, we are, in effect, poor uh, relative to citizens in, in many of the countries with whom we, uh, we, we tend to compare ourselves. So um, yes, you know, we need to be concerned with GDP growth. You know, we've, we've, talked and written at the hub about um, the 2% trap, which we seem to be stuck in. Um, but as you say, immigration uh, cannot be viewed as, as the sole means by which we're going to move our economy forward. It, it's a crucial input. Um, but we need to be asking tougher questions about why don't we have higher rates of productivity? Why don't we have higher rates of business investment? Uh, why don't we have more R&D spending? Why don't we have the types of of core inputs that ultimately uh, um, are fundamental to rising GDP per capita levels. And I think you're right. In a way, higher rates of immigration is is the is the kind of policy class essentially throwing their hands up in the air and saying, we can't figure out how to solve those difficult problems. And so uh, we're just going to juice the denominator um, and tell ourselves a story that our economy is has moved beyond $2 trillion or whatever in the aggregate. And I just, I'd go back to my point. Um, that really doesn't tell us much of anything about um, the personal economy of, of most Canadians. Yeah. And to pick up on something you said earlier, what interests me, Sean, is that labor in Canada seems to have been relatively silent on this. There is now probably the noisiest group in op opposition of, um, million plus a year immigration and these ideas of a hundred million plus target by 2100 is the Bloc Québécois and obviously anxieties within Quebec about their relative political power and standing, their ability to defend and protect the French nation. But to me, so that makes sense to me. What, what doesn't make sense to me is, is seemingly labor's acquiescence to this, because as you say, it would be really healthy, I think, and I would support this for a rebalancing of the power relationship between labor and capital, and that this is good for economies. It means that the the sharing of national wealth isn't solely captured by uh, corporations, their their shareholders, and divided amongst um, 
you know, the portion of society, frankly, that has more as opposed to the, to put it simply, the portion of society that has less. If we have more wages and wage power on the part of workers to demand higher salaries and compensation, yes, that's, I'm sorry, it's hard for businesses. It, uh, it, it can be inflationary, but that's also an external pressure on those businesses to then invest in, guess what? Exactly. Productivity, ways to lower um, um, their input costs, uh, including labor, through investments in technology and automation and intellectual property and all the things that create long-term wealth. So to me, this is, a, a, again, like a... A business kind of elite in this country that is so used to, in a sense, not competing, not really competing with each other, certainly not competing in many cases across telcos, banking, uh, almost the entire cultural sector, industry in this country, not competing with entities outside of the country. They don't like that. Having kind of brokered and managed competition amongst one, one another and now wanting to avoid, oh, no, there's this pressure point coming up. Labor suddenly has more power. We can't allow that. We have to bring in uh, surfeits of new labor to push down labor costs so that we can capture more of the uh, productive output of our businesses to allocate to our executives through share options and other kind of structures and to the capital class, the share owning class. I mean, I'm sounding like a real Marxist today, but it, <laughs> it fires me up because I want to see working Canadians benefiting from these demographic changes after, as you say, for the last 25 plus years, they've been on the other end of the proverbial stick having to accept, um, you know, a suppression of, of the demand for labor. Yeah, let me respond um, to those economic insights. And then maybe with the time left, talk about some of the bigger social dynamics at play here. But just on just on your point, it's, it's, it can't be emphasized enough. You know, the labor market functions like any other kind of market, there's supply and demand. Um, and as you say, the the, for a long time, um, supply outstripped demand, and that put downward pressure on wages. We are now, because of demography, moving into a, a sustained period of tight labor markets where uh, supply will, uh, where, where demand will outstrip supply. And the way that markets are supposed to function is that wages are supposed to rise, price, prices are supposed to rise in order to reach some kind of equilibrium. And it's <laughs> there's something kind of um, for lack of a better term, hypocritical about these businesses effectively demanding governments intervene in that market to um, to stop it from uh, from supply and demand working itself out as it as it ought to. Uh, and so, you know, the increase in immigration generally is part of that story. Certainly, the uh, demand for higher levels of temporary foreign workers is part of that story. Um, but what we effectively have is capitalists uh, calling on governments to intervene, to, to effectively disrupt the proper functioning of supply and demand. Um, and if you are uh, someone in labor circles um, uh, or a, a sort of Marxist, as you say, you know, you have an argument here that uh, they want their cake and eat it too. When the market functioned in a way that preferenced employers, they resisted um, governments intervening in, in, in support of workers. Now that the market is is tilted in favor of workers, suddenly the capitalists want um, government to intervene. And um, and as you say, if you're if you believe in markets generally um uh then you ought to then markets ought to be work themselves out uh free free from state intervention just one other point here because i, I you've mentioned a couple of times the uh, a million immigrants per year and i think that's worth unpacking for listeners because it's it's a piece of the puzzle that often goes neglected in these conversations uh our our annual intake level for permanent residents is set to increase to half a million per year uh, according to the government's current plan. But that's only one half of the equation when you account for temporary foreign workers, student visas, et cetera. We're actually bringing something like 1.1, 1 1.2 million newcomers into the economy and into the country each year. 
And in a way, when you're talking about the functioning of the labor market, or you're talking about the demand on services or infrastructure or housing and so on, in a way, Roger, that second number matters more than the first. Um, and so I'm glad that you you put that on the on the table. Um, but maybe just to, just to interest your thoughts. These are thorny issues, and you know I think it's fair to say that the two of us are all things being equal, highly supportive of immigration. Um, but talk a bit about the social dynamics here at play. Like I, I, I was struck, for instance, that in Andrew Coyne's column in support of the Century Initiative's uh, vision of 100 million uh, uh, population by 2100, he made the case that, well, it's not that big of a deal because actually our population grew um, by the, the same rate um, between 1970 and the present as it would need to do um, between now and 2100 to reach that level. But it seems to me it's a bit of an apples to orange, oranges comparison because, of course, from 1970 to the present, natural births um, were a, a major part of that population growth. Um, whereas uh, moving forward, you know, according to most projections, given Canada's low fertility rate, uh, immigration will do all of the lifting. Um, and the consequence of that uh, ostensibly will, will be different um, um, than the, the growth that we, we've seen in the past. Again, that's not an argument against immigration, um, but I think it is a recognition that we need to grapple, as you said at the outset, Rudyard, um, with the economic and social effects of, um, of such a, a kind of transformation of Canada's population as envisioned implicitly in the Century Initiative's agenda. Yeah, well said, Sean. And I think, you know, you and I both share a view that it's good for Canada to be bold. And one of the things we historically have been bold on is immigration. And we've been able to do that because we've had this remarkable social consensus around yes. it. So I want listeners and other people who are going to jump on Sean and my back, I'm sure because of this podcast, to understand. I mean, I wrote a book about it 10 years ago. We're strong supporters of the social consensus on immigration as a, as a positive for the country. We just think that there are, there are risks when you engage in such a radical and rapid and then sustained increase in absolute numbers. And I, I think some of the key things that, you know, are not being addressed in this debate, which we've explored a bit at the hub is, you know, some, some hard facts like, the average age of immigrants coming into this country is the same as the natural born and current immigrant population. We are not making ourselves younger demographically through immigration because rightly so we have policies like family unification. We don't, and I don't believe we should go down the road of, you know, the types of policies we saw in Europe in decades past of guest workers who were not allowed to reunite with their families in Canada. But the result of that is many older people come over as a result of family unification and we're not making ourselves younger. So this, this pressed a lot of pressures we know on, on our healthcare systems because we're not benefiting from the dependent, better dependency ratio of workers to retirees, younger people to older people, immigration, does not solve for that. Number two, critical point, again, not really addressed. When we were averaging for the last decade or more up to this recent surge in immigration, you know, intakes at a quarter of a million, 300,000 a year, we were able within our point system to genuinely access skilled and highly skilled immigrants because the total volume was at a rate where, where we could attract that available talent to come to Canada under our point system. When you take it up to these numbers in threefold, fourfold increases, you have to be realistic that the point system is now going to increasingly uh, select for less highly skilled. And in some cases, you, you're going to have to include what you might in the past have identified as lower skilled, but in order to meet this target, they're now going to be able to access uh, uh, permanent residency and a pathway to citizenship at a much lower level. Now that's critical again to per capita GDP because historically productivity gains, uh, the larger again, 
wealth of nations problem was helped, assisted by bringing in, frankly, raiding <laughs> developing countries, poorer economies of their best and brightest and bringing them to Canada. So, there, I mean, there's a whole other ethical debate there. And then my final point on all this is that the point system is a really good thing. But in people's minds, there's this view that is, it's as if the point system is assessing everyone that comes into Canada. In fact, it only assesses about one-fifth of the total uh, immigration intake, not including student uh, visas and, uh, you know, foreign worker and other programs. Just simply the, the core immigration program, only roughly a fifth of people are assessed, because rightly so, the there's the candidate who's assessed and then they're, they're family members who could and should and will and I think absolutely must come with them to Canada when they, when they immigrate. But the result is that our point system isn't going to be as effective. It's assessing a small portion of the overall cohort of immigration. And we've gotten into this kind of lazy thinking that, oh, there's just an endless surfeit of highly skilled people that we can steal, frankly, from India, uh, South Asia, uh, Africa, other places around the world, and bring them into Canada to, to boost uh, per capita GDP. Quite the contrary. It's actually going in the opposite direction, declining per capita GDP. And I don't think this problem helps. I don't think it's solved by uh, what we're doing. Yeah, the economist Mikhail Skuderud, uh, who's one of the most dispassionate, evidence-based, rigorous thinkers on the subject, said to me in a previous episode of Hub Dialogues, when you go from, as you say, 300,000 or 350,000 immigrants per year to 500,000, what you effectively do is just slide down the list. <laughs> um, so those who may not have been screened in um, based on the point system at 350,000 are now screened in at 500,000. Um, and there are consequences for them too, right, Rudyard? Like, if we are bringing people here who are not well-placed because of language or skills or whatever to fully participate in Canada's economy and society, I mean, not only is there um, the point that we've been discussing so far, um, not only is there a... a, a weaker likelihood that they'll be economic contributors. Um, but we're actually setting themselves setting them up for failure. And it seems to me, if you have a, a kind of growing sub community of of um, people who came here in search of promise, and opportunity not finding it, you know, that creates the conditions for resentment, and grievance and growing polarization in our society. And so I don't know what the optimal number is. Um, you know, the truth is, Rudyard, I don't think there is. It's kind of an exercise in in prudence. Um, you know, what can um, Canadians, Canada's economy and society accommodate? What is the kind of right threshold in terms of maintaining, as you say, um, relatively high levels of support for relatively high levels of immigration, which I completely agree is a massive comparative advantage for Canada. But it just seems to me, I'm it's not I'm not convinced um, that um, those arguing for higher and higher rates of immigration are kind of exercising that prudence. Um, and the risk, of course, is um, that it starts to erode um, that comparative advantage that we have for Canada. And I think I hope that's what listeners are hearing from us. Not that you know by no means should we be closing the door to immigration, but we need to have a a, a real meaningful conversation about. What is that right level um, to ensure that um, Canada's economy is supported and the people who come here um, have a real shot at um, the kind of Canadian dream that Stuart talked about last week, which I, I don't know about you, Roger, but I, I found really kind of aspirational and moving, quite frankly. Yeah. Let me just end on a policy thought. I mean, maybe the time has come to really um, understand that the jurisdictions affected most by immigration are the provinces. And we should start to think about ways to devolve uh, this federal responsibility so that provinces together um, can identify what their, uh, what their needs are um, from an economic labor and other perspective, um, set targets, uh, negotiate those targets, 
and then implement them and then review them, you know, on some kind of reasonable time frame. Most immigrants, we know the majority settle in the GTA in Toronto because as they should, they have freedom of mobility rights under the charter. We're not taking those away, nor should we. So again, the whole idea that you can have these surging absolute numbers of immigration and not have substantial economic, and I, I worry in the future, societal and cultural impacts around the consensus on immigration, because it's not evenly distributed. It is, it is borne by a few specific um, area codes in the country that take, absorb the, the vast majority of, uh, of immigration. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue to follow this. I urge people to check out Stuart Thompson's piece on the Century Initiative today. It's an important debate uh, for us to be having, and I'm, I'm glad that Stuart's opened it up in his piece, and I think we've opened it up today in a, I think, a respectful, fact-based uh, manner that I hope encourages more conversation and reflection on, on this really essential policy issue that in some ways is almost a taboo. It's, it's very hard for people to talk about it um, in the context of national interest, in the context of economic interest. Um, I guess for many people, it's, that's considered bad taste. I, I think it's just part of what a mature, sophisticated country like Canada should be doing about any and every issue, um, including uh, these, well, let's face it, I'll say it, radical ideas to take the Canadian population to 100 million by 2100. Well, let's take a quick break back on the other side with a discussion of industrial policy. We're going to make it super fun, super exciting. Stay tuned for that right after this short break. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, is off this week on a well-deserved family trip overseas. Sean, um, the other big news out this week that I want to get your thoughts on, because it's something you've written and uh, commented on extensively for the Hub, but also outside of the Hub as part of your kind of contributions around the public policy discourse in Canada. And this is the increasing, I don't know what you call it, blackmail, bidding war <laughs> between um, electric car battery makers and, uh, in this case, the Ontario and federal governments around various generous subsidies. We've seen this all kicked off by the remarkable $13 billion subsidy to Volkswagen to set up a uh, an electric plant in uh, St. Thomas, Ontario. $13 billion, Sean, is something like I don't know, 14, 15% of the total market cap of uh, Volkswagen AG. I mean, it's a wow. vast, vast wow. sum. And now we have uh, Stellantis, another battery maker, saying, hey, you gave us a billion, but we just saw the deal you did with Volkswagen, so we're going to be tools down at building this new plant <laughs> until you come back to us with a sweeter offer that, reflects you know the advantages you've given to one of our direct competitors uh in the automotive space i mean what the heck have we done here sean and can humpty dumpty be put back together again yeah there's lots of different lines of conversation that we could have on this subject you know you framed it in broad terms about the utility limits of industrial policy as you said it's something that i've written somewhat favorably about uh, in the past couple of years, uh, um, you know, notwithstanding criticism from uh, that I've received from some 
you know, who are more inclined to a, a, a market oriented view on these issues. Um, let me just make a couple of points. First of all, uh, in general terms, I, I do think that there is a case that we, we need higher levels of public investment um, in science and technology in particular, um, that Canada's science and technology ecosystem um, is uh, in need of um, both higher resort, more resources, but also um, new ideas and new thinking about kind of institutions and and processes and so on. I mean, put it bluntly, Rudyard, we've effectively kind of outsourced uh, science and technology activities and decision making. Um, effectively to university professors um, who, you know, carry out their work in a kind of discovery-oriented way. And it seems to me in an era in which science and technology is so fundamental to some of the issues we've been talking about, productivity, um, economic growth, you know, and oftentimes increasingly um, because of dual-use technologies, even um, national security, um, that we need to have a, a a different approach to the way we do science and technology. And, and if that means industrial policy, well, you know, I'm open to talking about that, but just on this particular case, cause I, it, it can't be emphasized enough as you, as you outlined um, earlier, the, uh, the contribution to Volkswagen was so extraordinary um, that it has really put, I think the federal and Ontario governments um, in a, a, a kind of lose-lose situation. Um, you, the in that particular case, public dollars are totaling something like thirteen billion. Uh, the company is putting in seven. Not a bad deal if you could get it, eh? Um, meanwhile, Stellantis, according to reports, has received something like a billion dollars in public subsidies and is intending to invest something like five billion of its own of its own dollars. And so, you know, it has an argument. Um, that there is something disproportionate about um, these two particular cases. And it, I think it speaks to the limits of this kind of corporate welfare model that uh, effectively, um, without a kind of framework or a set of principles, just has politicians kind of announcing large sums of money. Um, particularly, and here, I'll stop here, Roger, particularly in a world when it's not obvious to me um, that electric vehicles is a, is a, is an area in which Canada ought to prioritize. You know, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't. Um, you know, but I think it, it, you know that's where markets are supposed to send signals. And in this case, particularly the Volkswagen dealership, this is not a market decision, right? This is the government essentially saying we want a battery production plant in our economy, and we're prepared to spend whatever it takes to get it. Uh, and you know, that is uh, a kind of a, a, an unsustainable economic model and Stellantis um, calling the government's bluff is a sign of just how kind of unsustainable it is. Yeah, good points. I mean, just to pick up on that last one, you know, is this a way to think about, you know, the future of the Canadian economy? It certainly it could be aspirational. You could want to be a world leader in battery manufacturing, but I think every indication would suggest that, in fact, the Chinese are significantly ahead of everyone on this. And more importantly, if the reporting is correct, the Chinese have captured a lot of the critical kind of supply chains that will allow the manufacturing batteries, and they're even innovating new technology like sodium batteries that could conceivably displace or disrupt a lot of the technology that we're now going to invest billions of public dollars to make available to Canadians manufactured in Canada. And it just goes back to the fundamental point is you can't know the future. You cannot know the future. Yes. And yes. what this is, is I think a very hubristic bet on the part of government that they somehow can discern winners from losers. And this has a tragic history in Canada, uh, there's a cucumber greenhouse, I think, in New Brunswick that <laughs> goes down in the annals of Canadian history as, you know, one of the most outrageous examples of these types of public subsidies gone wrong. And I just look, I'm not I'm not a market fundamentalist, but I do think that there you have to if you're going to do this, 
at least then play to some strength where you could look at the market and say, okay, it's not sexy. It's not, you know, the future with a capital F, but Ontario, for instance, is really good at food processing. We're, we're actually yes. a leader in North America on this. We have an amazing um, distribution uh, and infrastructure network in Southern Ontario uh, that is connected with the United States and, you know, services markets across the U.S. Uh, visa rail truck uh, all feeding back again into, into critical, you know, food processing infrastructure. Maybe that's where the money should have gone. I don't know. At least if they're going to spend the money, pick something where we're already ahead as opposed to these moonshots, frankly, moonshots that they're engaged in now. So, Sean, I just, I don't know. I I worry. Well, well, let, me, yeah. let me just pick. Let me just pick a point where we where we're already ahead and where we're not actively competing with everyone else. I mean, the fact that these investments were justified because we were responding to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States is a signal that they shouldn't have happened in the first place, right? Like, if if your only motivation is that the Americans have a blank check. Um, then it's a sign that we're probably not going to be able on a sustainable basis uh, right. to compete in this one, area. So one, trillion, point, one trillion dollars of subsidies the Americans can roll out. But I mean, two comments on one. I think a lot of this, let's be honest, it's rank politics. There is an election coming up. We have a minority parliament. Uh, this is a government that is struggling in the polls right now. These ridings in Ontario will be key battlegrounds. And um, there's a lot of politics. At play here, we got to be honest about that. I think there's probably more politics than there is economics behind this because the government has refused to release or doesn't have any economic justification, qualitative or quantitative, that the Ministry of Finance or anyone else can produce to justify these investments. And my, let me end on this. My my last contribution is, is I hope, Sean, maybe that this is the last gasps of. A remarkable era, this, this decade of easy money that we have been living in. Uh, Tiff Mecklen was out this week cautioning Canadians, and I think by extension cautioning the government, that we are not returning to the low interest rates of uh, the post-GFC great financial crisis, that their deglobalization, aging of the workforce, all these various things are going to probably sustain higher rates of uh of input costs uh, across our economy for an extended, if not indefinite, period of time. And you just look at the United States and Canada, both countries this year will spend, as part of their federal budgets, more on debt servicing than they do on their militaries. In Canada, debt servicing costs this year are estimated to be uh, approximately $50 billion or half the entire federal transfer to the provinces for health care. So my sense in a, in a <laughs> I take no pleasure in this, the market will and is going to impress discipline on this type of behavior because these types of subsidies are so off the charts, are so, in a sense, I think, disconnected from the growing kind of fiscal pressures that will compound, especially as Canada, where so much of our debt that we've issued is on the shorter uh, duration term. We're going to have a big portion of our national debt renewing in the next two to three to five years, more than half of it. We didn't issue a lot of long-term debt over the last decade because we were using ultra-low short-term rates to rightly, might you say, in that environment, you know, manage uh, the fiscal costs of the deficit. Well, that's all going away, Sean. And I hope with it, this kind of magical thinking about, you know, the future with a capital F and how governments should decide winners and losers to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars of of uh, public money. Yeah, I don't know if that's the glasses half full or the glasses <laughs> empty take. I'm a little more skeptical that um that this is the end of something as opposed to the beginning of something. You know, think about it this way, Rudyard. Um the goal of net zero by 2050 envisions 
an industrial transformation of uh, Canada's economy, along with economies elsewhere around the world. And the impetus for that transformation is not a market one. It is a kind of small p political one. And I'm not I'm not even making a judgment about whether it's a good or a bad idea. Um, but if left to its own devices, it's unlikely that markets are going to produce that kind of change. Yes, of course, we'll see some pressure within supply chains and that sort of thing. And, and that will, on the margins, push companies um, towards uh, lower emissions. There's also the kind of social responsibility dynamic, which co companies are responsive to. Um, but effectively telling a manufacturing plant um, that it needs to have uh, zero emissions in its in its operations or production, or saying that by 2035, every new vehicle sold in Canada has to be electric. That is not a market dynamic. That is a political one. And for that reason, you know, it seems likely to me that, well, the Volkswagen number uh, may not be reached again because it's so extraordinary as we've been talking about. One envisions a world where we have an economy more marked by subsidies and loan guarantees and tax credits and yeah, so. Sean, it'll never, Sean, it'll never happen. All these things are just are pipe dreams. They're just projections of you know future aspirations and anxieties into an undefined future. I mean, global debt issuance is over three hundred trillion dollars around the world of debt, corporate, individual, sovereign debt. It increased by over 50 trillion in the last two years. There, at a certain point, there's too much debt for it to be serviced, to buy, to roll over. All that debt has to roll over. And we're adding more and more and more to it. I, I, I think there's a, yeah, look, I, it's not good. I'm not saying that it's going to in any way help with climate change or greening our economies, but these straight line extrapolations of our current public finances into the future and deals like this Volkswagen thing, which you, I think, wisely pointed out on a previous episode of Hub Dialogues, isn't an industrial policy because it's not replicable. And as we're seeing with still exactly. it most definitely, well, maybe it is replicable. Well, I don't know. Christopher Freeland is making noises that it's now up to the Ontario government to to figure this out. I don't know. But my point, Sean, is that I think all of this is, is the last gasp, the harbingers of this easy money MMT world that everyone, markets, businesses, corporations, but especially governments are having a hard time leaving behind because these tsunamis of debt, which have built up, all have to be re rolled over, all have to be refinanced, that's going to cause higher borrowing costs, investors of all types demanding higher yields. Um, and I think it just puts a giant steak knife through the heart of the kind of massive interventionist government that we've seen, not just in Canada, but across you know advanced democracies as we've struggled with sclerotic economic growth, as we talked about in the first half of the show, by substituting productivity gains and real wealth creation with debt fabrication. And now that is all going to have to be unwound. It will be extremely painful. And I, and I do genuinely worry about living standards and about, um, you know, whether this whole idea of perpetual growth, um, amongst Western advanced economies is something that's frankly going to continue um, in the decades to come. So that was definitely glass half empty, but you know, I don't know, Barb, maybe, maybe AI will deliver the sudden shock of productivity gains that we need to increase our standard of living, but it also seems like it will possibly underemploy or unemploy hundreds of millions of people across the advanced economies. So tell me how public finances work then. Well, um, I suppose you mentioned steak knives. I wonder if that's a good way to wrap up. People <laughs> people can listen uh, to this conversation at the barbecue over the over the weekend. I, a long weekend, of course. Uh, we're celebrating Victoria Day on Monday. Rudyard, we have great content at the Hub next week, even uh, with Stuart's absence. We're kicking off the week 
with uh, by a, a leading British scholar of American colonialism and grappling with the record of Queen Victoria, who's who's who we're marking on Monday. We have uh, dialogue episodes with uh, Aaron Woodruff from McDonald Laurie Institute on changes in Canada's media landscape. Uh, we have a kind of interesting episode on psychology later in the week. And of course, we'll have a David Frum back next week to talk about, amongst other things, um, all of these American uh, Republican politicians um, seemingly dipping their toes into presidential politics and setting themselves up uh, to go mano a mano against uh, the former president. I wonder what his nickname is going to be for some of these guys. But anyway, we'll have that all next week. Uh, um, and thanks uh, for taking the time to connect on a couple of really important subjects. Yeah, yeah. And it's strange. Like, uh, I'm just waiting for Queen Victoria to get canceled. I mean, come on. It's so bizarre. We've, we've got this one day left that's like overtly colonial, i.e. invoking an aspect of Canada's colonial past. Well, I mean, I guess it was post-Confederation to a large extent. Uh, so not really colonial. But nonetheless, it's just so odd. I mean, personally, I love it. Uh, but I'm expecting, no doubt, some anodyne, I don't know, what, what would they call the spring long weekend or family day weekend or some deracination of identity as we've seen in our passports recently. Queen Victoria hangs on for now. She reigns <laughs> glorious, victorious over us. But for how much longer, Sean, I do not know. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.